Well, we find ourselves back in the book of Judges. So if you haven't already turned there, turn to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10. We're going to start talking a little bit more about uh, uh, Jephthah, the next uh, major judge. Last week, uh, we talked like Jephthah was a sandwich, and one slice of bread and the other slice of bread, bread were uh, minor prophets or minor judges. And, and so we talked about the minor judges that are sandwiched in uh, around Jephthah. But today we're going to take up a more in-depth look at the uh, judge uh, Jephthah. And uh, I read chapter 10, verses 6 um, last week as a kind of a, a setting to leave you off with uh, what was going to happen. So I'm going to reread that section of scripture, and that'll be our jumping off point for today. So Judges chapter 10, and starting in verse 6. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and Ashroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, the gods of of the Philistines. And thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. And they shattered and crushed the sons of Israel in that year. And for 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan, and which is in Gilead, in the land of the Amorites. And the sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim so that Israel was greatly distressed. Well, as I said last week, this section of scripture introduces a turning point in the book of Judges. The people had left God in the past, and God had delivered them in the past. But now, however, they moved to complete apostasy. As you read in verse 6, the list of gods that they turned to and worshipped, they boiled down to the fact that any god was preferable to Yahweh. So as a result, God hands Israel over to their enemies, Ammon in the north and the west, and the Philistia in the south. So the whole country, not just a section of it, is uh, being uh, dealt with or brought judgment upon for their sins of uh, worshiping and other idols and other gods. In verse 7, we read the rather scary phrase, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. 
That's a scary thought, that the God of the universe, the God who made everything, the God who sustains everything, is angry at you. This is a God that you had a covenant relationship with. And you turn your back on him. And he's angry with you. So great was his anger that he permitted the Ammonites to shatter, that's the word used uh, here, shatter Israel. Now the word for shatter is used only one other time in the Bible. And that's in Exodus 15, 6. And here it refers to God shattering the Egyptians. Now think what God did to the Egyptians. He destroyed all their crops with the locusts. The animals got sick with boils. The firstborn was taken. The entire army was destroyed in the Red Sea. Think of that type of shattering being applied to the nation of Israel. So we pick up in verse 10. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee. For indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? And when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Manaans opposed you, you cried out to me, and I saved you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. So here we have an example of um, superficial repentance uh, on behalf of the nation of Israel. The children of Israel have become experts uh, in uh, sinning and repenting. Sinning and repenting. They have learned what some people call the rebound technique. Just name your sin and God would automatically forgive it. A modern comparison, I think, would be um, to view God as an impersonal computer. Type in the right message and forgiveness will come out. However, God rejects their easy believism. And Israel finds out that God is not an impersonal computer. But he's an actual person. 
He's the triune God. And that God is offended by their actions. In this passage, we see that God calls attention to seven different times in the past that Israel had sinned against God and seven times God had saved them. At the same time, they're slipping into total apostasy sevenfold in uh, worshiping these other idols. However, if you look at that list of seven uh, deliveries that God had prepared for them, there's a sign of hope or, or grace in that list as in all of God's chastisements and judgments against his people. He reminds them that he has already delivered them from the, from the house of Ammon and from Philistia before. And that should be an encouragement, that should be a sign of hope for them that he could do it again. But God says, I will save you no more. So what's going on here with that statement? We know that God doesn't change his mind. And we were about ready to look at Jephthah, the next deliverer. So what do you think is going on with that statement? I will deliver you no more. Any other thoughts? She says maybe he's not going to accept superficial repentance anymore. That's a po- definitely possible. I have no complete answer either. I, I'm looking at it from uh, a different well, a point. A, a, I look at it as covenantal language. There's, God has promised to forgive. 
He shows mercy as part of his character. He loves and has compassion. But he's a God of justice. And he's a God of, uh, uh, of his promise. And he's promised, if you repent, I will forgive. And so I think it maybe goes back to a little bit of what Rachel was saying too. That, you know, it has to be sincere. And we see this happening in the book of Jonah, if you, if you really look at it. God told Nineveh that he would destroy them in 40 days. Yet they repented, and God spared them. And so I think that's kind of what we're seeing here, this covenantal relationship. This is God's people. He loves them, and he's their God, and they're his people. And so he offers that repentance, and he will then forgive uh, their sins. Not because the repentance was so great, as we'll see here in a minute, but because he loves them so much, um, he won't let go of them. Verse 15, And the sons of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do, do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. So as Rachel alluded to here, Israel's repentance was more genuine this time, but hardly totally sincere. As we've seen in the past, they asked for repentance and received uh, deliverance and then continued to sin. Don't forget from the study of the minor judges, they have within them this desire for a king rather than to accept godly rule over them. That still remained in their hearts and in their lives. So that repentance uh, wasn't totally genuine. But what I believe is far more important in this statement is in verse 16, that the Lord was upset by the misery of Israel. Again, we see the character of God here, who God is. This is his people, and he suffered misery over what they have done. God will deliver them this time, not because of their half-hearted repentance, but because he loves them in spite of their sin. The long-suffering of the Lord has not come to an end as of yet. And he will raise up to them a deliverer, Jephthah, who will show them their own spiritual shortcomings because he, is, as an individual, mirrors the entire Israelite culture. His shortcomings is the same as the culture of Israel's shortcomings. So he's going to act like a mirror to that culture. 
And God's going to use him to teach a lesson to the nation of Israel. Verse 17. Then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped at Gilead. And the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall come head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. In verse uh, 13 of chapter 11, we see that Ammon had intended to retake all of Israelite territory and uh, reconquer that and rule over that. And so Israel is going to go to war to resist that. But instead of depending totally on the Lord, the people of Gilead look for a strong military leader and they intend to make a deal with him. Now up until now, each judge had been expressly raised up by the Lord for his special task. And up till now, the people have confessed that they deserve to be destroyed and they would cast themselves wholly on the Lord and beg for him to save them. But things have changed here. The people of Gilead, however, are not relying entirely on the Lord. They put their faith in a deal they will make with some military leader. They will offer this leader a crown to rule over them, a crown of a king if he saves them. As we look at this section of scripture, several problems confront us with the account of Jephthah. And most of you know the story. Did he really kill and offer his daughter as a burnt sacrifice? Was he a man of real faith? Before looking at the text, I think it uh, might be a good idea to deal with some of these problems in general. And then take a closer look at them in scripture. In this last year and a half or so, <clears throat> I have come to believe what is in the book of Revelations totally different than what I believed when I was a teenager. And that has kind of a, shook my spiritual life up a little bit. And I'm afraid I'm, I'm seeing the same thing here in this narrative on Jeph Jephthah. Some of the things that I have believed um, are beginning to change the more I studied this lesson. 
And um, so I feel like I'm walking on quicksand here. Um, many good men have read the same passages and, and come to different conclusions. Uh, therefore, I, I'm not going to be dogmatic on my position here. Uh, you may have just a valid argument uh, from a different point of view. I'm not going to deny that. But it's just my ideas have started to change a little bit as we look at these. And uh, they're not totally in tune with the traditional uh, view of this narrative. But I'll try to be transparent with my arguments, and I will try to offer the best scriptural support I can for my ideas, my point of view. So just keep that in mind. It's, it's not written in stone. It's just something I'm dealing with going through here. Some commentators assume that Jephthah had a real but unknowing faith. They argue that he lived in barbarous times and did not know any better than to make a deal with God and to sacrifice his daughter. But I see Jephthah listed as a hero of the faith in Hebrews 11.32. It says, And when, <clears throat> what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. So I see him here in the hall of faith. Um, so I, I question whether or not uh, he had uh, this weak faith or this nebulous faith that some commentators credit him with. But even if he wasn't listed here, the fact that the book of Judges calls explicit attention uh, to his anointing by the Spirit of God, he was selected by God to be a judge in Judges 11.29. And we have seen in the past that such anointing implies that all the graces of the Spirit, in some measure, will be uh, uh, imparted until uh, th this man, or uh, the judge that God has chosen. Also, I think there can be no doubt that Jephthah knew the law of God. He was familiar with things that have been recorded in the past. For instance, he, he writes a letter to the king of Ammon, and he's very explicit in the events that were recorded from the book of Numbers. He was no ignorant man. And again, I find myself in a unique position but I believe a good argument can be made that Jephthah's daughter was not killed, but was devoted to perpetual virginity and service at the door of the tabernacle. And I will attempt to lay all that out in my reasoning and, and scripture support as we approach the text on that. That's one of the things that I'm working through myself here. <clears throat> Some other conservative commentators have argued that Jephthah did absolutely nothing wrong. He was a great hero of the faith. 
And God provoked his vow, and his vow was good. And there's nothing here to criticize. So you could take either side of the argument if you have uh, prefer a position and feel comfortable with it. But I believe, again, the more important point needs to be made, and I've been trying to build up to this point, starting with Gideon and working through the minor judges. Yes, Jephthah was a real hero, and yes, God provoked his vow, but Jephthah had a weakness, and this weakness was the same weakness all of Israel had. Israel thought they needed to have a human king as a deliverer, and Jephthah thought so too. And Jephthah's flaw was that his desire was to start a dynasty. No doubt, he thought it would be the best thing for Israel. But the desire for a humanistic king uh, penetrated all of Israel's culture. So with that point in mind, if you keep that in mind, that this is their point of view, this was Jephthah's point of view, then Jephthah's actions later on make more sense. However, the Lord God of Israel acted to prevent this from happening by removing from Jephthah any possibility of his stumbling over this idea of kingship. And by doing so, he was also teaching Israel a lesson as well. So keeping this important point in mind, Jephthah's vow was, I don't believe, was rash. I think it was well thought out. He had something definite in mind, this kingship, this dynasty. For a threshold sacrifice is connected to the establishment of a kingly house or dynasty, as we shall see. But God moved Jephthah to make his vow because God wanted to make it clear that it was God's house that was the true house of the king. And it was his house, the tabernacle, that would be built, not Jephthah's house. Thus the Lord reproved Jephthah and Israel for desiring a human king and reminded them that he alone was their king. And that was his house that would be built up. Chapter 11 and verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begat Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bore him sons. When his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows gathered themselves to Jephthah, and they made out with him, went out with him. It's from this reading, it's kind of unclear to me whether Jephthah knew his father or not. 
I think there's some interpretation challenges here. Uh, for instance, verse 1 reads as if Gilead was his father. But Gilead was what? A city, a district, a town. But it reads as if Gilead was his father. So if Gilead is a town or a district, then perhaps what is being said here is that any man within that region could have been his father. And as we'll see in a minute in verse 7, we find that it was all of the men of Gilead, including the leaders of the town, who drove him out, not just brothers. Moreover, when Jephthah died in Judges 12.7, it simply says that he was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. So we get the impression that this is a man that had no home, no family, and that he's buried in a place as unspecific as his birth. So if my understanding is correct, and again, I'm not being dogmatic here, then the wife of Gilead in verse 2 and the brothers may simply refer to the legitimate women and sons in the district of Gilead. The possibility does exist, I admit, by divine providence, that perhaps Jesus' father had the same name as the area of Gilead. So that is a possibility, and it could be a possibility that they were true brothers. But I'm not reading that totally uh, in this passage. <clears throat> Jephthah was illegitimate. And illegitimate children could not be full citizens of Israel until the 10th generation. And that's found in Deuteronomy 23.2. And the same thing is true of the Amorites. Deuteronomy 23.3 says they cannot be full citizens until the 10th generation. So what we see here is God is secretly raising up an excluded man in order to destroy an excluded people. Thus, they had to wait ten generations before they could take up full citizenship in Israel. And thus was the ten generations before any Judahite could become king. Anybody from the house of Judah? The genealogy in Ruth 4, 18-22 shows that David was the 10th generation away from the illegitimate ancestors of the house of Judah. So this is one of the facts as to why Israel was not to have a king during this period of judges. Only somebody from Judah could be king, and many of Judah's tribe was temporarily excluded because of illegitimate ancestors. Remember, Judah went in and had sexual relations with Tamar, 
and she had twins, and they were illegitimate, and that was, became the, the ancestors that we're referring to. All of their kids became illegitimate until the 10th generation when David became king. So this fact shows the folly that Jephthah tried to accomplish. As an illegitimate person, he was not uh, to be a full citizen and certainly could not become a king setting up a dynasty. But of course the main reason is that there would be no human king at this time is that God wanted thoroughly to establish the fact that he was the true king. And he wanted to establish that fact before he allowed any human king to be set up as his representative. Abraham had other sons by concubines, and he sent those sons away from the area where Isaac dwelt, but he gave them gifts, Genesis 25, 5, and 6. There's no statement in the law that allows for an illegitimate person to be driven from their house and not be given something And the action that Jephthah's brothers, or whether they were real brothers or the, or the whole town, was thus cruel and wicked because he did not receive anything. And God repays them for their humi humiliating of Jephthah. And they in turn will be humiliated before Jephthah. Like David later on, Jephthah gathers a band of impoverished men around him. The term worthless uh, we find in this passage uh, is defined in Nehemiah 5.13 as impoverished. So like David, Jephthah gathered these impoverished men around him. And just as David became famous for raiding the enemy of Israel, Jephthah acquires fame for striking at Ammon. So I believe, given Jephthah's spiritual character, that his raids were conducted against the enemy. It is a work of God's grace, I believe, that Jephthah did not become bitter against Israel, but instead he uses his skill to protect God's people, the people who mistreated him, and the reason for that, I believe, is because Jephthah's true loyalty was to God himself. Jephthah is said to have lived in the land of Tob. Now, Tob means good. So while God punishes his own, <coughs> own land, he took care of his faithful man in another place. He took care of him in a good place. And we'll cut it short here. Didn't quite get to the end, but we'll pick up later on. Any comments or thoughts about Jephthah? Okay. Seeing none. Um, 
We'll pick up on Jephthah's demands uh, uh, with the people of Gilead next week. So, uh, Brother Wade, would you close in prayer, please?